Hello, everyone, and welcome to Functional Fertility, the podcast designed to demystify your hormones, up-level your lifestyle, and supercharge your fertility potential. I'm your host, Dr. Kalia Waddles, and today's episode is all about nutrient density in the preconception food plan. And there's no better person to talk about this than my guest today, Lily Nichols. Lily is a registered dietitian nutritionist, a certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author with a passion for evidence-based nutrition. She's the founder of the Institute for Prenatal Nutrition, co-founder of the Women's Health Nutrition Academy, and the author of three books. A new book, Real Food for Fertility, that we'll hear about today, and then some classics like Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes that I truly think I have recommended hundreds of times. It's such an honor to have her on the show. Welcome, Lily. Thank you so much for having me. Fun to be here. We're really excited to hear about your new book and quite frankly, just to pick your brain. I've been following your work for so long and I really respect and admire your commitment to sharing research briefs and really bringing an evidence-based approach to prenatal nutrition. So we have lots of juicy topics to talk about today. Yes. A big theme, like I mentioned, is nutrient density. And I know this is a passion of yours to really shift and emphasize nutrient density, both while we're trying to conceive, of course, during pregnancy and then during the postpartum phase as well. And I thought it would be helpful for us to start our episode today talking about protein because there's so many questions about this. I get DMs about this all the time. Will you just give us a little bit of background to start and tell us what are some of the benefits of emphasizing dietary protein, specifically when we're in that preconception phase and trying to get pregnant? Yeah, absolutely. I'm kind of a, a broken record on protein. <laughs> And it actually overlaps with the nutrient density conversation as well. Like when we're speaking of nutrient density, it's like looking at a certain amount of food at what is the level, how can we, how can we pack in the highest amount of vitamins and minerals um, into that bite of food? So we're not necessarily overeating to get a greater nutritional benefit. Um, bang for your buck, I guess you could say. So protein is actually one of the foods that are rich in protein are some of the most nutrient dense foods on the planet. And this is not just my opinion. There was actually a researcher who looked at the most nutrient dense foods on the planet um, based on their level of some of these key micronutrients. And you look at their list and it's almost all protein rich foods pretty much all animal foods with the exception of, I think, leafy green vegetables were like made the top nine, <laughs> the cut for the top nine. Yeah. Um, so um, when you're looking at, you know, macronutrient wise, your fats, carbs, and protein, arguably your protein rich foods are the most nutrient dense. They pack the biggest amount of vitamins and minerals per amount of food. Um, but not just that, our protein is really vital to the function of our body. I've already written extensively in the past on the important role of protein for pregnancy, postpartum. Now with this new book, I'm going into um, the realm of fertility as well, but you need it for really healthy metabolic function, maintaining a healthy level of lean body mass, muscle mass, um, blood sugar balance, hormone production, liver detoxification. We don't think about it, but like really all of our enzymes are made of protein. All of our detoxification or the majority of it 
um, is at least starting in the liver that requires some of these key enzymes made of amino acids to help detoxify our exposure to uh, harmful chemicals and such. We need it to maintain a healthy uh, level, like body temperature level, thermogenesis, support our thyroid function. Um, and you're probably already making all those little like connections in your head of how that impacts fertility. It both directly and indirectly affects fertility. Um, the big challenge, I think, is that our dietary guidelines as a whole set our protein recommendations really at like a bare minimum level. And when you're looking at what is actually optimal, it's quite a bit higher than what they suggest. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I have a couple things I need to go back and dig into a little bit because you got me thinking with this thermogenesis. I, I, I have been underappreciating this connection and I have tons of patients who they're taking their basal body temperature because they're trying to get pregnant. And mm -hmm. even, even when their thyroid looks good to me on lab work, sometimes they'll say to me, my temp is always like 97 degrees. Mm -hmm. Is this a situation where you might dig in a little bit and look about, look at their dietary protein intake? Yeah, I would. I would dig into that a little bit more. Um, so yeah, low, low protein intake can affect the thyroid, but it can also like, if you look at how different um, macronutrients are like burned, so to speak yeah. for energy in the body, um, protein requires the mo most energy to use it for energy, so to speak. And that, re that results in heat being dissipated as a result of that process to a greater degree than the metabolism of uh, fat or carbohydrates. So yeah, I think that's one where you really want to look, look into that. Mm -hmm. um, and also looking at total energy intake, because if we're under eating as a whole, our basal body temperatures are going to be low. And when you look at the data on women with hypothalamic amenorrhea, who are no longer ovulating, no longer menstruating, um, which often happens in those who are under eating or somehow under fueling for their activity levels, um, you often see low protein intake. Um, right. And sometimes they're restricting protein-rich foods as a means of avoiding fat due to, you know, there's sometimes there's disordered eating stuff going on or just sort of like a fear of fat for some reason, or it's too high calorie, but by default, fat and protein come packaged together in food. So if you start obsessively avoiding fat, sometimes they're also way under eating um, protein as well. So it kind of can affect it from many different angles, but yes, I would definitely look into that a little more with those clients. Okay, this is fascinating. Let me pick your brain on one more thing before we move on from this topic. I'm I'm just now, um, for practitioners who might be listening, for patients who might be listening, I think the question will come up, what's the best way to assess my protein intake? Is it an app? Do I do a 24-hour diet recall and someone looks at it? Will you give us your advice about how we assess our own protein adequacy? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's like, less accurate, like ballpark methods where yeah. you sort of look at, okay, this approximate portion or visual of this protein rich food gives us X number of grams and you tally it up. You could use an app. I tend to like chronometer, no affiliation. I use the free yeah, version. Um, I like that one because it also gives you um, micronutrients as well. And it is less focused on <laughs> calories than some of these other tracking apps. A lot of these tracking apps are 
really geared towards like the weight loss market and they're very zeroed in on calories and they feel a little like aggressive and like judgy Mm -hmm. when you use them and chronometer doesn't have that feel for me how they've designed it um so you could tally it up just by um you know approximating the portions of the foods you're eating and putting it into chronometer arguably the most accurate although i will say that even i outside of like school have never even done this would be actually like weighing your food like if you really want to get accurate you have to like weigh the food Mm -hmm. (laughs) see what's in there so i think the middle ground version where you're getting a best estimate on your portion sizes and then entering that into chronometer um would be where i would go um and that'll help you tally up a total number of grams of protein you can calculate out, you know, based on your body weight, how many grams per kilogram you're consuming and see how that kind of compares to what's sort of an optimal level of intake for you. Um, but it can be really eye-opening. I think people often overestimate the amount of protein they consume. Um, and then when you tally it up, they're like, oh, <laughs> I only got like 10 grams of protein at that meal. It's like, yes. <laughs> We got that was me, that a little. chronic overestimator here. And mm-hmm. I actually did kind of a hybrid of what you're talking about, where I realized that I actually wasn't conceptualizing a serving of protein or a serving of, you know, an animal food. And so I actually used my scale to like weigh out three ounces and look mm-hmm. at what that actually looks like mm-hmm. so that I could eyeball that. And then I just did it one time and then used that to guide the rest of my yeah. going forward. But uh, yes, it's hard if you've never done it before to to it get. Is. Yeah, That's and really and some people also get. I've learned is that some people, when I say you know maybe they're aiming for like 100 grams of protein per day, they will think that I mean like 100 gram weight of meat. Okay, mm-hmm. like 100 uh-huh. grams of meat is like three ounces. That's, it's not pure protein, like grams of protein. That's the gram weight of the total food. Mm. So that's more like three and a half ounces of protein. There's with meat, it's usually like seven grams per ounce. So you're getting, you know, 20 something grams of protein in 100 grams of meat. 100 grams of meat is not the same as 100 grams of protein. So just want to throw that out there. I didn't Very know good that clarification. fusion existed, but it, that question has come my way dozens of times at this point. Um, that was smart to point that out because now I'm going to ask you about our ideal our ideal goals for protein. And I thought it would be helpful for us to talk about the RDA first, the recommended daily allowance, because if someone Googles like how much protein should I have, that's what they're going to get. So will you talk about the RDA first and what the limitations might be and then give us your hot take on whether that RDA is sufficient? Yes, I love talking (laughs) about this. (laughs) Most people have heard my spiel on, on pregnancy or postpartum, but The RDA, the recommended dietary allowance, it's based on a body weight in kilograms um, calculation and is set at a really low level. So 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. So this equates to about 55 grams of protein per day for a woman who weighs 150 pounds. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Conversion from pounds to kilograms is like a (laughs) 2.2 factor conversion in case, you know, everybody outside the U S knows kilograms in the U S it's like 
why are they giving us our protein recommendations in kilograms when nobody measures their weight by that? You know, good We're question. We're on the Google conversion thing trying to exactly. figure it out. Exactly. So just pointing out the little unit conversion thing. But um, when you work that out to a percentage of calories, it's often only like 10% or something of calories. It's pretty low. There is another dietary guidelines thing called the acceptable macronutrient distribution range or AMDR. And that says your protein intake to be healthy and have a healthy diet, your protein intake can range from 10 to 35% of your total calories. So the RDA sits at the very bottom of that recommended level, which is really interesting because they're also saying you could be perfectly healthy with like a third of your diet coming from protein rather than a 10th of it. So the RDA really is set very low. It's set at a level that is, you know, a minimal amount to prevent overt protein deficiency. It is not set at a level that estimates optimal intake or optimal health. And the past 20 years or so, there have been some new laboratory methods that have been developed to help us measure how individual amino acids, like the components of protein, are utilized in our body. And this has really opened the doors to like a whole new area of protein research. And that research is really pointing to the concept that the RDA is not sufficient for what our body truly needs to thrive. Um, and some amino acids, which we previously thought were non-essential, like you don't have to consume those, your body will just make enough of those from other amino acids. That's actually an, an incorrect uh, assessment. That concept was never scientifically proven, and yet it is published in every single nutrition textbook. So really where we're at with the data is most research is pointing to the need for something like minimum of 1.2 grams per kilogram per day. And it's very possible that optimal intake is closer to 1.5 to 2.2 grams per kilogram. At 2.2 grams per kilogram, that's a gram of protein per pound of body weight. So mm -hmm. that 150 pound woman that the RDA says you can get by with 55 grams of protein, it's possible she may actually need 150 grams of protein for optimal health. Um, and some of this varies, of course, by your level of activity. Like if you're using your muscles a lot, you need more protein for repair. Um, so those people may want to err, you know, on the higher side, those who are more sedentary may be okay with a little less, but nonetheless, really there's, <laughs> I would say there's consensus in the protein research that the RDA is too low. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm happy that we're differentiating between this is what you need to stay alive. Yes. And then this is what you need to experience resilient, optimal health. And that is yes. a wide delta at times. Mm-hmm. One of the most common questions I receive in my inbox is how can I support my egg quality? Whether you're thinking about fertility in the future you're trying to conceive for the first time, or you're preparing for IVF or egg freezing, caring for the health of our eggs is one of the most important ways we can support our fertility. To optimize my own egg health, I've turned to my partners at Needed. 
Their egg quality support supplement combines four targeted and optimally dosed antioxidants to improve egg quality, including CoQ10, which I'm always talking about as a powerful antioxidant and mitochondrial support. Remember that an egg cell or an oocyte takes three to four months to mature before ovulation. And this is a powerful time to support egg health through targeted nutritional support. Needed egg support is safe for pregnancy and breastfeeding, contains therapeutic levels of targeted antioxidants, and was curated by a team of fertility-focused practitioners and researchers. If you're thinking about getting pregnant in the next year, I highly recommend adding needed egg support to your supplement routine. Head over to thisisneeded.com and use code FUNCTIONALFERTILITY for 20% off your first month of needed products. That's thisisneeded.com and use code FUNCTIONALFERTILITY for 20% off your first month of needed products. If we're under eating protein, how might that show up in our health? If anyone is listening and they're thinking, okay, is there anything I can just notice or observe about my body that would tell me I'm under eating protein? What can I look for? Are, are there signs or symptoms? Is there a warning? Yes. So you might notice that you're really hungry. You can't stay satiated or satisfied after meals. So you're always like you finish a meal and then you're like in the pantry looking for a snack with within an hour after the meal ends, sometimes within half an hour. Um, blood sugar imbalances really commonly show up with um, under eating protein. You can have challenges um, maintaining or gaining lean body mass. So if you're under eating, maybe you're like losing weight, but you're also losing muscle. If you're under eating protein, but eating more calories to make up for it, you may notice you're not putting on muscle mass, but you're putting on fat mass, like not lean body mass. Mm -hmm. um, so blood sugar swings, a main one. I would also add headaches to the list. Um, the most common thing when people come to me saying they have um, headaches is to check their protein intake, particularly at breakfast, and then their hydration and electrolytes. But you usually need to address both. Oftentimes they're not eating enough protein, therefore their blood sugar crashes um, and they get a headache as a result. Um, I think those would be some of the primary ones. Um, and some of the interventions, intervention studies for like polycystic ovarian syndrome, PCOS, uh, include higher protein intake because it is such a boost to our metabolism and also so regulating for our blood sugar and insulin levels. So um, if that's a condition you're experiencing, I would also say it's a wise choice to, to take a look at where your protein intake is. Smart. I have so many patients who are working on increasing their dietary protein. And something I hear all the time is, well, I think people um, have this perception that it means you have to eat a ribeye for breakfast, you know, that it's going to be like, that's all you're eating, Atkins yep. diet style or something. What advice do you have for us for incorporating more dietary protein in a way that doesn't feel cumbersome or um, for 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 anyone who might say it just it doesn't sound good. It, I don't want to like eat just steak all the time. Yeah. Well, I think the modern food landscape is uh, arguably not a traditional way of eating. And so a lot of us have been accustomed to very like grain based 
eating plans, you know, the meal centering around pasta or rice or bread or potatoes. Not that I'm anti any of those foods, but they often take up like the bulk of the room on our plate. And then meat is like this little teeny side dish or maybe is not even a part of the meal because there's such a big push for um, plant-based eating that a lot of people are also intentionally avoiding meat too. Um, so I think it feels unnatural and our body is kind of like, you almost like don't crave it or want to eat it much because it's sometimes taking the place of the more delicious things, the meal. Um, so I would say get, get creative and vary your protein sources as much as you can. So try not to get stuck in a rut of, okay, my protein is all, like you said, steak or something or all what I see more so is like all chicken. Yeah. Um, you know, boneless, skinless chicken breast is fine. It's high protein, you know, but it's like very plain and bland. So get a bit creative with the way that you're cooking. Um, I, I seem to see a lot with clients that they're doing, you know, grilled lean proteins and that's it. And that gets kind of tiresome to have like another salad with a cut up chicken breast on top. Like maybe you can get chicken thighs, um, put them in your slow cooker with a chopped onion and dump a jar of salsa on top, a little salt, slow cook it. And then you have shredded chicken, very flavorful shredded chicken that you can use for tacos. That's just like, it's the same meat, but you're doing it in a different way. Um, get creative with eggs. Uh, I've tons of examples on my Instagram feed of all the ways that I enjoy eggs. Those are certainly, you know, protein rich and enjoyable way to, to have your um, enjoyable breakfast to have. I would say um, consider again, like the chicken idea, making use of your slow cooker. So try out a recipe for like pulled pork or sounds grandma, but like pot roast. It is such a nourishing flavorful, enjoyable meal. It uses a really inexpensive cut of meat usually. Um, and you can cook it once and have leftovers for days, depending on the size of your family. Um, so I would just try to mix it up and make the call to include some source of protein, whatever it is, even if it's a plant protein, like nuts or nut butter or legumes or something, um, but some source of protein every time you're sitting down to eat, just to get accustomed to including it on a regular basis, and then try to work on hitting a certain quantity of protein. Usually by just having a little at all your meals and all your snacks will get you like 80% of the way there. And then we might need to just like up it by like an ounce or two at one of your meals and then lo and behold you've hit your protein goals so um try not to overthink it too much <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That, those are very realistic suggestions and i want to say justice for pot roast because yes that is excellent and in 2020 my family we left our city house and we moved and now we raise cattle on a cattle ranch oh cool so we have we raise highland cattle and we have pigs and chickens and obviously we have a real focus on regenerative agriculture and nourishing foods and a lot of that just happens to be animal foods because of the animals that we raise here and so i have a 
multiple freezers full of all different types of beef. And the pot roast has emerged as a family favorite in my house. And I talk to people about breaking food rules, like of what a traditional breakfast looks like. It doesn't have to be toast and cereal, right? You can have your leftover pot roast with some potato in a bowl for breakfast and it's warming and nourishing and comforting and delicious. It is delicious. And in lots of cultures, they do have savory type foods for breakfast. I'm thinking of like Kongi and when we visited Thailand and you're having this like rich broth with rice and like meatballs and stuff in it um, for your breakfast. And it's delicious. So yes, I agree. Trying to break those food rules, um, what we expect from meals is great. And, um, And to your point of raising cattle, I feel like for me, the biggest thing that helped me increase my protein intake was when we first started investing in a half or a quarter cow. And wow, like, I didn't really know how to cook much meat before we did that. But when you're getting all these random cuts, many of them are just bone in cuts, you like you have to make friends with the slow cooker. And you quickly realize that that is like, the most flavorful foolproof like you can't mess up pot roast like you really can't like just make sure you're using the right amount of salt follow a recipe that gives you salt guidelines right like half to a teaspoon per pound of meat is usually what I do as long as you get the salt right you can change out any of the seasonings the liquid the veggies whatever and just cook it long enough if it doesn't feel tender cook it longer and like it's never ruined it gets better and better the more you cook it so We need to just, you know, own those grandma skills too. They're coming through and really helping us meet our protein needs. And while we're on the topic of animal foods, you recently shared a research brief, which I love when you do these. I love these research brief posts. And you shared one that highlighted this connection between the intake of animal foods and some micronutrients that are really critical to fertility and pregnancy. And you mentioned that that oftentimes the protein-rich foods tend to be the most nutritious in general. Will you give us the scoop uh, on this topic that turned out to be somewhat controversial in your comments, which I think sometimes research briefs just are inherently um, stir up some debate, but what micronutrients could we be missing out on if we're not consuming animal foods for a variety of reasons? Yes. So in this particular study, they were looking at um, protein intake, um, well, level of animal foods that somebody was consuming relative to their nutrient intake that included their protein intake and micronutrients. And it found that people who are eating less animal foods generally were consuming less vitamin A, less vitamin B6, B12, choline, um, zinc, and calcium were were the six they identified as being too low. And then on top of that, they were eating less total protein. So people who are eating like low levels of animal protein, their average protein intake for the day was 61 grams. So you could argue if this is a woman, they're meeting the RDA, right? The RDA is 55 (laughs) for a 150 pound woman. Um, But by contrast, the high animal protein group was consuming 110 grams of protein. That would be aligned with more of the level of what is optimal that we've been talking about here. The reason that the animal foods seem to contribute so significantly to the protein is that they're more concentrated in protein than plant foods. So even your richest 
protein sources that are plant origin, like your beans and legumes and nuts and seeds and so forth, they contain other macronutrients. Their calories are not coming primarily from protein with a little fat. Their calories are coming from a mix of protein, carbohydrates, and for for legumes, very little fat, for nuts, a lot more fat, but like it's a blend. And so the protein is just less concentrated, meaning you have to consume a much larger portion of say pinto beans to get the same amount of protein that you'd get in a smaller portion um, of meat. So in order to hit those higher protein targets on a diet that doesn't have animal foods or has less animal foods, you either have to consume much larger portions and then that means consuming a lot more calories. Like you just might not have room for it um, or choosing isolated protein sources like vegan protein powders, like a pea protein powder or something like that, um, which would get you the protein that's been extracted from the peas without the carbohydrates and fiber and stuff that comes with it that kind of dilutes the protein level. Um, So this is why we just naturally tend to see um, this difference. It's not like good or bad. It just is. And it's a pretty consistent observation in in the literature and dietary surveys on um, dietary type and, you know, protein intake, macro and micronutrient intake. Mm -hmm. And I imagine this has some implications for our patients and clients who are trying to um, focus on some weight loss goals coming into, you know, yes. in their preconception phase that focusing on those animal sources of protein are going to help them meet their protein goals with less calories potentially. Yes, definitely. Particularly if you're mixing in um, some lean protein sources as well. If you're doing like all fatty animal foods, and believe me, I'm all for the fat, but if you're doing all fatty animal foods, you certainly could be consuming more calories. But as long as there's a mix also of some lean protein in there, um, yes, you absolutely can hit your nutrient targets with a lower calorie intake um, on, a, on a plan that's omnivorous. Um, it does get very tricky. And, and actually, in, uh, in the new book, I have a whole chapter on um, the challenges of a vegetarian diet and go into a lot more detail on things like the micronutrients, the macronutrients, the protein, the protein quality. People don't realize this. And actually, this is a, this was a new finding for me in researching this book. But the RDA, I don't know if you knew this, the RDA for vegetarians is made, which is not different from omnivores, by the way, currently. It is made under the assumption that they're getting 50% of their protein from animal sourced foods, meaning eggs and dairy products. 50%. I don't know if you know, have done much dietary analysis on vegetarians, but for me, I feel like a lot of the people that I see who are doing, you know, more plant-based or vegetarian eating plans, and they've taken out all like meat, poultry, fish, and they're only, you know, they're lacto-ovo-vegetarian at this point they're even trying to minimize those foods as well. So most of them are not getting half of their protein intake from dairy and eggs. So this one analysis suggested actually that vegetarians need to consume if they're getting that low animal protein intake. They actually need to consume at least 20% more protein 
than an omnivore to make up for the fact that plant proteins are of low quality, low digestibility, low utilization. Like you can't use 10 grams of protein from beans is not equivalent to 10 grams of protein from eggs or dairy or meat or fish. Um, your body can only use a, a small, smaller percentage of that than the animal products. So that was like fascinating to read because already vegetarians are almost always, unless they're really working hard on it, on average, you could say this for sure, on average in the research, they're eating a lot less protein than omnivores. So if they already need 20% more, I'm like, I don't know how you would do that without either focusing on eggs and high protein dairy products like cheese or Greek yogurt, cottage cheese, or isolated plant protein powders, because you're just not going to be able to hit that goal without consuming a ton of calories, <laughs> like just so, so much volume and so many calories of food to get that smaller concentration of protein that's in there. So I think that's a really important thing for people to consider. And I, I've never seen that addressed by people promoting plant-based or vegan eating. Um, this is a, actually a new finding to me, even as a dietitian, that was not, not addressed in my training. Absolutely new to me. And I'm over here just trying to visualize how many eggs someone would need <laughs> to meet half of their uh, protein intake from eggs alone. And I maybe this is me, but um, I kind of max out at maybe like four or five eggs and then I can't do it anymore for the yeah. day. So that they're is really, they're really filling. I, I <laughs> usually max out maybe at like three. I can't get that many down the hatch at once. Um, maybe if it's spread out, <laughs> they're just very Throughout filling. The day. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it would be, it would be tricky. That would be someone hitting 50% as a lacto ovo vegetarian. That would be having probably multiple eggs a day and multiple servings of dairy products a day. And what I'm currently seeing and the trend and the push for plant-based is people trying to have as little as humanly possible. So yeah. So how much extra do they need? I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I think a related topic that has some um, similar themes is dietary iron and looking at yes. plant-based versus animal sources of iron. Will you walk us through the difference between a heme and a non-heme iron, which iron is one of my most important fertility nutrients. So I think this is very fitting that we talk about this. Yes. And I hope you saw my blog article on how much iron you absorb from food. That was like uh, many years in the making article. I'd always like visualize putting together all these like graphics that are showing the percent differences because I got... Yes so frustrated, especially in the prenatal world, we'd always have these handouts on boosting your iron intake. And um, at one point I inherited some handouts from a, another dietitian and it was like, <laughs> meat might've not been on there or maybe it was mentioned once and everything else was like spinach, raisins, black beans, molasses. And I'm like, A, that's not that much iron, but B, how much of that can you absorb? So how much molasses are we going to eat in the day? <laughs> Right. So to level set on the iron, we can get iron in foods um, in different ways. Um, animal foods contain what's called heme iron. So the iron is bound to a protein called heme. It's the same heme protein that our body incorporates into our red blood cells in the form of hemoglobin, right? That's one thing they're measuring to check for anemia. 
in uh, plant foods, it's in the form of non-heme iron. And there's a vast difference in the amount of these different types of iron that your body can absorb. Heme iron is super well absorbed. You generally are absorbing about 25% of it. Um, however, some studies say it could be upwards of like 40%. Whereas non-heme iron from plant foods is absorbed at less than 5%, pretty much across the board. If you look at whole grains, it's as low as like 1 point something percent. Mm -hmm. I mean, 5% is generous because there's many plant foods where the heme iron absorption is like in the 1% to 2% range. So that means when you're looking at the iron content of foods, you need to consider not just how much iron it says there is in that portion of a food, but you almost need to do some calculations. Like how much of this can you actually absorb? So I've done the work for you. If you go to my site or some of it is posted on my Instagram, just search my website for iron. Um, you'll see we have charts of like the estimated amount of iron that you absorb from these different foods for both heme iron and non-heme iron. And we even have some comparisons on like plant foods versus animal foods. So for example, to match the iron um, absorption from a three and a half ounce serving of chicken liver, you would need six cups of cocoa powder. Cacao Ooh. is really rich in iron, but most of it is not absorbed because there's tannins and oxalates and all sorts of other compounds in there that are preventing its absorption. For uh, a chicken thigh, if you're just looking like portion to portion how much is in the food, a three and a half ounce chicken thigh has the equivalent amount of iron to about half a cup of pumpkin seeds. Half a cup of pumpkin seeds sounds doable, but when you calculate out the percent that your body can absorb, that's the equivalent of three cups of pumpkin seeds in order for your body to absorb the same, the same amount in a three and a half portion, three and a half ounce portion of chicken thigh. So there's many more examples you could check out on the, on the site. But again, it's like, we have to look at what is reasonable. There's all these theoretical things thrown around in the nutrition world, particularly in the plant-based space. And like, Yes, conceivably, this thing sounds possible. Yes, there is this nutrient found in plant foods. How much is in there? How much can we absorb? It, absorb? Is it utilized in the same way as another form? And these are the questions that a lot of people just um, either don't seem to ask or just kind of gloss over. Um, and yeah, I kind of want answers. So that's why I dive into it. Well, I appreciate you doing these deep dives because these are questions I have all the time and patients will come in and will do their lab work and they'll either have low iron or they have low ferritin, the storage form of iron. And they'll always ask me, do I need a supplement or can I get this up with food? And then we have to say, okay, it depends. Like, What foods are you eating and what yeah. can we focus on? Because if you are focusing strictly on the plant foods, which I totally will honor at preferences, it's going to be more difficult for me to get this up without a supplement. And so there's yeah. all of these nuances about how we can yeah. reach those goals. It gets complicated. And then when you're talking about, like, it's not just about raising the iron, but raising, you know, hemoglobin levels and, and red blood cell count, like you need a lot of other nutrients outside of iron 
A, to utilize the iron in the first place, make sure it goes to the right place in the body, but also to support that red blood cell production. So it takes kind of a holistic view. It's like, okay, well, yes, we need the iron, but then, oh, we also need the vitamin A in the retinol form. We need B12, we need folate, we need riboflavin, we need glycine, like so on and so forth. You add it up, there's quite a few things that you have to consider um, and it gets complicated. As, as a you know client, but also as a clinician, it gets really complicated. Well, this is the perfect place for me to ask you about, I would say, one of the most common questions I'm seeing like in the social media sphere right now, which is, should I take a liver supplement? This is all over. And I, I've seen this trend, and you've likely observed this too, where people are saying, I'm actually not going to take my prenatal vitamin anymore. I'm just going to do a liver supplement. And I had to, I had to get your thoughts on this. Yes. So, you know, and funny enough, a lot of these people and some of even these organ meat supplement companies without my um, acknowledgement or knowledge will like cite me as like, oh, yeah, and just like take this liver and it's the same as a prenatal. And I'm like, I literally never said that. So, <laughs> yes, liver is very nutrient dense. People will refer to it as nature's multivitamin because of its nutrient density. It's really hard to top. Like, liver and like bivalve shellfish are kind of tied in first and second place for their nutrient density. Is it a one-to-one -one replacement for a prenatal vitamin? Not so fast, right? It's one thing to be a nutrient-dense food. It's another thing to have a single food be rich in every single micronutrient and mineral of concern at sufficient concentrations to be a replacement for a supplement. Um, and so that's where I think there's a bit of a, a disconnect in the space. And um, yeah, it does kind of worry me how many people are just foregoing a prenatal vitamin in lieu of just having liver. So um, you want to look closely, like look at a micronutrient analysis on liver and then like pull up a label for a comprehensive prenatal vitamin and then see where the levels are. Yes, you will be getting likely a you know fairly rich source of like B12. Certainly you'll be getting plenty of vitamin A, no question on that. Um, but are you getting enough vitamin E? Are you getting enough magnesium? Are you getting iodine? Are you getting, you know... The list goes on. Um, so I think we just need to be cautious on this because yes, while it is nutrient dense, it's not a one-to-one -one replacement. I look at liver as like a nutrient dense food that's like fortifying your diet, but not necessarily a replacement for a supplement. Like if you were to use liver solely as your prenatal here's the thing in order to get enough of like lots of other things you would actually be overdoing the vitamin a okay i think we should cap liver consumption particularly in pregnancy at like three to six ounces a week and i go into this in depth and i have an article on my site on liver for people who want to read more but if you wanted to like okay vitamin a aside that's going to be through the roof if you're eating more than that you'd have to eat like a lot of liver <laughs> to get enough like, you know, vitamin C, vitamin E, um, thiamine, uh, 
there's really not that much iodine in liver. So like, that's not going to replace it gets worrisome to me. So, um, yeah, I'm totally fine with people taking a desiccated liver supplement at the rough equivalent to a three to six ounce fresh uh, portion per week. But, um, I see it as an adjunct, not a replacement to a prenatal. That's super helpful. And I've been trying to do this. I'll be in my visit with patients and they'll say, okay, I'm taking this liver supplement and I'm just trying to figure out what I should do with my prenatal too. So we're like, on the internet with each other, looking up the ingredients. And sometimes I find on the liver supplement they're taking, it'll say something to the effect of this is, you know, a, a desiccated animal product. So, um, the ingredients or the concentration of nutrients is an estimate and it could differ batch to batch. And I'm like, ah, it, it gets Which a little bit can. overwhelming for me. Yeah. It can differ batch to batch. And, and that's the difficulty of whole foods. If you know anybody in the supplement space, who's trying to like formulate whole food based uh, things, getting a micronutrient breakdown is really tricky because it varies, you know, it varies based on how things are grown, how it was stored, how it was processed, laboratory conditions. Yeah. So, um, it's tricky and, and imperfect. So when the stakes are high and you really want to like hit all of those micronutrient requirements, I feel like we should be treating liver and liver supplements like food and treating supplements like supplements. <laughs> you know what I mean? I like um, that. Yeah. Well, anyone can go on your website and read more because there's a lot to unpack here, but I appreciate this, this perspective. It helps me as I'm working with patients and then anyone who's listening, who I know a million people have that same question. So I really oh, yeah. appreciate your feedback and your thoughts on it after all the research you've done, now you have written multiple books and clearly have a love for diving in. I know I can imagine you're on PubMed all the time, just finding all of these articles. Based on all you know, what are maybe your top five nutritious foods that we should focus on when we're trying to conceive? I'm sure you've mentioned some of them already. Yeah. And a lot of that comes back to... um it's really an overlap with that other researchers list on nutrient dense foods, which yeah. is funny because that paper came out after my first two books were published. I go and read it and like, wow, that includes like everything that's on my foods to emphasize list. How interesting. <laughs> um, plus some extras, of course. So uh, certainly I think a, an array of protein rich foods to include animal foods is certainly part of my recommendations. So your eggs, your organ meats, your red meat, some of that being like meat on the bone, which you can make into bone broth, the beloved pot roast, yes. slow cooked, you know, all that, but tough cuts of meat that have a lot of collagen. We do need some of the amino acids and collagen, not only in higher amounts for pregnancy, but it turns out preconception fertility as well. Um, seafood, another really important animal sourced food, really provides a lot of um, more difficult to get micronutrients that you wouldn't necessarily get from land animals, or at least not in sufficient amounts, especially your DHA, very important amino or um, omega-3 fatty, fatty acid for um, sperm quality and egg quality and just supporting overall like ovulatory function. Um, so seafood for that. Um, and also iodine is really rich in seafood as well as selenium. These are vital for ovulatory function. Selenium is vital for our body's like capability to fight inflammation and detoxify because we use selenium to make glutathione. So 
definitely including seafood somewhere on that list. And um, in this book, I go into a little more detail on like types of seafoods and all of the, but what about toxins? But what about mercury? But what about, but what about, um, I go into all of that. So you have a clear idea of like which ones I'm talking about and what to look for. So yes, while some seafood can be contaminated with toxins, which is actually arguably all of our foods, um, here's your best bet to choose the low toxin ones, like highest benefit, least risk ones. Um, I already said eggs, um, full fat and fermented dairy products. I feel like the data is pretty compelling on full fat dairy being supportive of overall fertility for many people, especially those who are not eating much organ meats. Um, dairy really ends up being a really significant contributor to our micronutrient intake, particularly for some of our fat soluble vitamins like vitamin A and D, which overall seem to have a pretty beneficial effect on fertility. And then I can't leave out like fresh and colorful produce. So while I love the animal foods, love to talk nutrient density all day, our plant foods, many of them are also pretty nutrient dense. They also have a place. They're also rich in antioxidants. And I also find there is pretty compelling evidence on the role for some of these um, specific vegetables or like the antioxidant compounds within them for supporting our body's health, for supporting egg quality, sperm quality, um, mitochondrial health. So like how well your body can like utilize and metabolize energy and nutrients when you're looking at, you know, everybody's always talking about supporting egg quality. I mean, our, our egg cells have the most mitochondria of any cell in the human body. They need a lot of energy. They need to be effective at extracting and utilizing energy for you to have good quality eggs and thus a good quality and viable um, embryo that can survive this like very miraculous process of of fertilization and implantation and and all of that um so we do need to be thinking not only on the micronutrient side which yeah those also support mitochondrial health but also thinking about antioxidants as well um and while the research can be a little split on supplemental antioxidants it does seem fairly clear um, in many instances, a higher produce, fresh produce intake like fruits and vegetables generally has an overall benefit to both male and female fertility. You're making me feel so um, happy about the Pacific Northwest where I am here near Seattle because every food that you mentioned is such a part of our local food culture yes. here. It's making me feel um, just very fortunate to have access to all the animal foods and the fresh seafood and the fruits yes. and vegetables. So beautiful. We're in like a very abundant area up there. Very food abundant. Yes. yes. Um, Lily, will you tell us just a little brief sneak peek about your new book? Yes, absolutely. So it's called Real Food for Fertility. And I co-authored it with my dear friend and colleague, Lisa Hendrickson-Jack. Um, you may know her as the author of The Fifth Vital Sign. She also hosts the Fertility Friday podcast. She's a fertility awareness educator. So we kind of combined the best of our knowledge and expertise, you know, me focusing on the nutrition side of it, her focusing on the fertility awareness side of it to make this book baby. Um, it's been many years in the making. We had talked about it even for years before we even started the multi-year writing and editing process um, about like, how can we really best support couples on their road to conception? Um, 
you know, a lot of my, at least my written work has focused on, you know, you're already pregnant, <laughs> right? And like, what do we do from here? And while prenatal nutrition still remains a major passion of mine, when we look at like optimizing pregnancy outcomes, reducing the risk of complications, just having a sustainable, viable pregnancy, we really have to rewind the clock to preconception. You can actually have a bigger impact on your pregnancy outcomes and arguably just getting pregnant in the first place, but your pregnancy outcomes by focusing on not only your intake during pregnancy, but preconception as well. And um, this goes for both partners. So we have, while the book is very much focused on women, of course, we have a whole very detailed chapter on sperm quality. And um, our major take-home point on that is that a lot of the same nutrients that are supportive for female fertility, they're also, for slightly but related different reasons, supportive of male fertility as well. And we need both partners to be healthy. So our hope is that this, this area that's so difficult to reach in practice, like catching couples in advance of trying to conceive or in advance of a surprise pregnancy, um, can we can we reach those people and really ease their road to conception? Whether or not there's fertility challenges along the way and we address those as well, it's like, how can we set up couples for success? And then also my personal passion, set up the next generation for success as well because you're inheriting your health from your parents. Like you inherit, this is crazy. You probably know this. Like after an egg is fertilized, paternal mitochondria is destroyed and you inherit maternal yeah. mitochondria, right? So like your mother's metabolic health is your metabolic health. Like I know how all this stuff in pregnancy and blood sugar levels and all this stuff plays a role in that, but really it goes back to before you even conceived, you know? So that's where I get really excited is... Um, setting up, you know, ease, ease the road to conception and the fertility challenges, but also this overlaps into the the broader area that my work has thus far really focused on, which is setting us up for healthier generations ahead. Yes, beautifully said. We are cultivating transgenerational health and creating abundance so that we can have a healthy and safe pregnancy, a smooth postpartum time, and then longevity in our health so that we can enjoy this family that you did all this planning to get. Yes. And hopefully you've set the stage for pretty healthy eating habits. So when, you know, shit hits the fan in early pregnancy and the nausea and Ready. food aversions are like, eh, um, you'll know that you'll be able, you started with a solid foundation, good nutrient stores, you could return to that, you can stay nourished postpartum. And really, this is a way of feeding your family for years to come. So healthier eaters, healthier people, healthier generation. Um, healthier yeah, world. Very excited. We're big dreaming now. Uh, well, <laughs> Lily, big congratulations on this new book, The Birth of Real Food for Fertility. We're so excited. To our listeners, thank you for being with us and, and choosing us as a trusted source of information. So much gratitude to the show's producer, Paola Martini, and go to your bookstore and get Real Food for Fertility. Thank you so much, Lily. Thank you. Did you love this episode and want to hear more? 
head over to drkaliawaddles.com slash podcast where you can find more episodes on all things fertility.